I'm not really sure how I feel about getting up right after you're so vain. She kind of sang a little bit more passion, didn't she? I don't know. Good morning, everybody. Every year, the Oxford English Dictionary produces their list of words that will be added to the dictionary, and in it, they produce the word of the year. And in November 2013, the Oxford English Dictionary once again produced the list of words that would be added to the dictionary, including the word of the year for 2013. And the word of the year was, as you might be able to guess, selfie. And in just a short period of time, the word selfie has become a part of our cultural nomenclature, and I hear it all the time, and I see it all the time. And in case you've been living under a rock and don't know what a selfie is, a selfie is a self-portrait photograph featuring the photographer, typically taken with either a handheld digital camera or, more likely, the camera phone. And then they're almost immediately shared on social networking sites like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And they're usually flattering and made to appear casual with a slight duck face is kind of what you see often. Most of the time they're taken with the arm extended, usually with a high angle because that helps in regards to the angles of the face, rather, and pointed either directly at you or in a mirror rather than using a self-timer. And they're everywhere and everyone is taking, it seems, a selfie. But selfies really go way back. In fact, the first selfie was taken by Robert Cornelius in 1839. He was a pioneer in photography. You could see uh, Robert Cornelius. Is that a little duck face there? You see that a little bit? Buzz Aldrin, he took a selfie in 1966 from space. And now you see it all over the place. Politicians, they take selfies. Celebrities, they take selfies. Remember, this is a, one of the fastest uh, shared uh, on Twitter like, uh, in history, right? This little picture right here of celebrities. And, of course, you got Kim Kardashian, who is very famous for the queen of being selfie. And then um, this past uh, October, Kelly and I were in Canada on vacation. We wanted to go see Niagara Falls. And as we're walking along the falls, all of a sudden I see this little group of women who were together, and they were taking a picture, but they had the camera on with this stick, and it was the first time I was introduced to what is called the selfie stick. And I thought, that is brilliant. And so I have a selfie stick, and we are going to take a preaching selfie right now of the Living Stones Church. So, all right, everybody, let me turn that thing around. Boom. Ready? Everybody smile. Smile. Oh, you guys look great. Smile. One, two, three. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Now, if you brought your smartphones, feel free to take them out right now and gather together. You can do it by yourself or do it in a group. Take a picture. It's all right. You can take out your phones right now. I'm, not, I'm, I'm serious. Take, take, a, take a selfie right now. And then when you're done, I want you to go ahead and post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you need help of knowing what, put hashtag LSC selfie. Take a picture. Post it. Hashtag LSC, right, selfie. And if you need, like, what do I say with it? You can put down, look, Mom, I'm at church. <laughs> or hanging with Jesus. Or getting my worship on at Living Stones Church. Southside selfie will work. Selfies for Jesus. These are my church clothes. You can put that down. If you're really daring, you can put more selfies than Granger Community Church. I'm down with that. That's all right. Really. Just kidding. Just teasing. Just teasing. Did you know the selfie stick has been banned in many places? Like, you can't even have a selfie stick anymore. Like, lots of different museums, the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim. At sporting events, did you know the Kentucky Derby will not allow you 
to use the selfie stick. Disney World has banned them. Many concerts have banned them. Chicago's Lollapalooza, Coachella, all banned. At historical landmark, uh, landmarks, if you go to the Palace of Versailles, the Roman Colosseum, you cannot use a selfie stick. Did you know they're not allowed in Europe in any of the soccer matches? And you know why? Because <laughs> they're then used as a weapon. Is what, <laughs> what was interesting to me, just this week, just this week, the Russian government has launched a brand new campaign called Safe Selfie because of how many deaths and injuries have occurred with people trying to take a, a selfie in Russia. Here is the logo where you can see like, hey, if there's an oncoming train, maybe you ought not to take a selfie right now. Right. If you've got a wild animal chasing after you or a gun in your hand, might not be the best time to take a selfie. Which you think, are you serious until you actually Google dangerous selfies and you recognize people are stupid, right? <laughs> like, hey... There's a house on fire. I think I'll take a selfie. Now, right now, if this guy gets gored, he deserves it, doesn't he? Like, is anyone going to feel sorry for this? No. Here's another one that turns my stomach. Yeah, that's a little queasy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> shark week, everybody. <laughs> it's shark week. In fact, did you know that psychologists have even done studies on people who post so many selfies as if to figure out what does it mean for people when they post so many selfies? In fact, it was just this past January, a study came out of the Ohio State University that found that men who posted more photos of themselves online scored higher in measures of narcissism and psychopathology, like they were psychopaths. <laughs> and here's what they discovered. They researched 800 men between the ages of 18 and 40 with a whole battery of questions and their habits, including when they posted, was it immediately, or did they put filters on it and edit it and those sorts of things. And in the end, here's what they discovered, that if you posted a lot of photos, but you edited them, you were on the narcissistic scale, but you avoided psychopath, uh, psych, psych, being a psychopath in terms of your personality. And the reason why is because psychopaths are impulsive, and so you take a quick picture and immediately put it on social media. But if you take time to edit it, then you're just narcissistic. So that's the be safe and always edit. Use that filter, that X Pro X. That's a great filter, right? Happy will take care of it. And I don't care whether you post selfies or not. There are a few who post too many, and I've got a small list. I'll get with you after church to tell you. And, <laughs> and some of you have way too strong hashtag games, like back off just a little bit on the hashtags. But in the main, this is not a message bashing the motivation and intent of people posting selfies on social media. In fact, I just asked you to do so. This is a message series that's, for me, a possible way of looking at life that I think can be reflected in the selfie, and that is the desire for everyone to look at me. And it manifests differently for lots of different people. And I know even in terms of those who are extroverted versus, versus those who are introverted. And I'd say, no, no, I mean, this, I'm talking about something that touches all of us, even the most introverted among us. It is what is the most prominent feature of the word selfie, and that is the self. That our main focus is on me, myself, and I. I want to be the center of attention. I am what is in view, and I want everyone to see me. And I think it's safe to say that we live in a time and a place where the focus on oneself is epidemic. We live in a culture and society that promotes the idea that everything should revolve and center on us. And sometimes we baptize our self-focus with all sorts of different phrases and cliches, things like, well, you just need to look out for number one, meaning you. You have to look out for yourself. Or you just need a little me time. Or 
You need to put yourself first, or you just need to take care of you, or you are responsible for your own happiness. And the thing is, the problem is, there really is just enough truth to these statements that give them verification they think that they need. And so, I don't know, you ever watch like Biggest Loser, shows like that on TV, like, if you ever watch like the interaction between uh, the trainers, the personal trainers and the contestants and those who are on, uh, on the show, one of the things that you'll continually hear is an ongoing refrain from the trainers to those who are trying to lose weight is that they have to stop putting the needs of everybody else above their own. They need to start thinking about themselves more and take care of themselves because they are prone to doing things for other people and to their great neglect. And when you watch it, you can't help but walk away and go, actually, there probably is an element of truth to that. Like, if you're going to lose a lot of weight or get healthy or improve yourself in some particular way, there is an aspect of you. You have to be a little selfish and at least guarded in regards to you. Even Jesus, when he says in Matthew 22, remember the two great commandments? The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, right? The second one is to love your neighbor as what? As yourself, which is interesting, which isn't to promote, hey, all about me, but it's to say, I guess even Jesus presumes that we will care for ourselves and our body to such an extent that it can at least be the baseline standard for how we ought to love our neighbor. And I think there's something that's probably fair about that. And I I say this because here's typically what happens. Whenever you talk about a topic like selfishness, here's what I notice typically happens in the room. Like the people in the room who are the most selfish, which I put myself included in this group. So this is not a sermon like, hey, I've, I've overcome self-centeredness, and let me tell you how I got there. This is, nope, I'm a fellow struggler in this. But here's what my experience is. Whoever, you know, those who tend to be the most selfish, like in the room, they hear a sermon on selfishness, and they go, man, so-and-so really needed to be here to hear that, right? But it wasn't them. Like, and the people in the room who are, who are the least selfish, like the most giving, selfless people that you know, they sit in all conviction like, oh, my goodness, I'm so selfish. Like, actually, no, you're not on, you were not on my list. And so uh, I don't say I just want to say not for false condemnation to kind of fall upon us, but for us to take a look at what I think probably is, at least for most of us, a proclivity to think about ourselves, to having to be the center of everything. Attention, decisions, preferences, opinions, resources, the focal point of the universe, the only view that counts and I include myself in this. (laughs) What I would say, in our defense, we get it honestly, like we were all born completely and totally self-centered, really. Babies are sweet, and I love babies. But they are complete jerks. Like, everything revolves around them, and I mean everything. How many times have you ever heard about a baby who was lying in the crib in the morning, and when the mother got up and checked on the baby, the baby said, hey, I soiled my diaper in the middle of the night, but I didn't want to wake you, so I just laid here all quiet, like hoping not to disturb you. Have you ever heard that story? No, no, it doesn't happen. Or how many mothers have ever been woken up at 3 in the morning with a slight gentle nudge from the infant, mom, mom? I'm sorry to wake you, but I'm really hungry. Do you think I could eat right now? Like, that just doesn't happen. No. What happens? A baby starts flipping out. It's crying at the top of their lungs until you do something. It's as if this little human couldn't care any less about your sleep deprivation. If any of your friends treated you the way your baby treats you, you wouldn't be friends anymore. (laughs) You would just be, you're a jerk. (laughs) And that's what babies are. Sweet, completely adorable, jerks. In their complete dependence on you, what they learn is that everything revolves around them. Every one of their most basic needs is provided by you for them. 
and the world revolves around the baby. And then the baby grows up. And the good job of parenting is to teach them that the world, in fact, really does not revolve around them. But this does not come naturally. In fact, it is one of the most unnatural things to learn and discover. In fact, I would say one of the problems in today's society is that the honest truth is that a lot of homes, the world does still revolve around the child. Just look at the calendar or look at the time, the child's interests and hobbies and habits and activities and needs and wants come before anything and everything. And the next thing you know, and sometimes you don't mean to, but you discover that as a parent, your whole world still revolves around the child. It is not natural to figure out the world really doesn't revolve around you. In fact, when the child gets older, they become toddlers. You put two toddlers in a room with one toy, and what happens, right? Here's what you don't ever hear. Hey, Bob, we've got one toy. I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes, and I want you to play with it, and when the timer goes off, I'll take a turn for 15 minutes, and then we'll both be happy, right? Does that ever happen? No. But what happens? What happens is a standoff of wills between two toddlers grabbing the toy out of each other's hands and repeating the greatest slogan of selfishness there is, mine. We are born completely and totally selfish. The problem is when we get stuck there for life. At the very least, we must acknowledge We each have a gravitational pull in our lives that seeks to get everyone else to rotate around us. It's sort of like, just go to the world of astronomy for just a moment. Like, you understand this in terms of the sun has planets, the earth being one of them, that rotates and orbits around the sun. Do you know why that happens? It's not magic. You know what what happens? The sun is so large, the mass of the sun is so great, it actually has a gravitational force and a gravitational pull that keeps the earth in its constant orbit. And that's why we move around the sun. And the sun is doing the exact same thing. We have such a mass here on the earth that it keeps the moon in constant. It's not free just to take off. It will spin continually in orbit around the earth that each one of us sort of has that very thing. We draw everything into our orbit and expect it to revolve around us. This is selfishness at its core. The propensity to think everything revolves around you. Your mood at any given time is determined based on all of the planets of your life revolving nicely around your orbit and gravitational pull. You've created a world that revolves around you. Your spouse revolves around you. Your kids Your job, your time, your money, your priorities, all nicely circling around you. You are living the selfie life. And most of us struggle with it. I struggle with it. But here's the thing about our faith. Like, if if we say that we are Christians, that we are followers of Jesus, this has been our confession. Our religion is predicated on this one central movement, that we take Jesus removing ourselves from the center and place him at the center. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. To give our lives to Jesus, which I know it's very easy to confess Jesus is Lord, but what it truly means to confess Jesus is Lord is to say, Lord Jesus, you are the center. And I will now revolve around you. My thoughts, my behaviors, my actions, My attitudes, my words, everything 
orbits around you, Lord Jesus. You are the center. Because the Christian life is ultimately a non-selfie life in that it intentionally replaces me, myself, and I with simply Jesus. What else does it mean than to call Jesus Lord? But everything revolves around him. And this requires true conversion. And it too does not come naturally. Because our normal orbital trajectory is to be the center. To put our own happiness at the center of our universe and want everything to revolve around it. And this is such a normal thing in our culture that to even suggest that maybe your happiness is not the most important thing seems a little offensive, doesn't it? Like you ever have something kind of well up in you? Like when somebody says, well, what do you mean you don't think my happiness is the most important? Yeah, I, you're, I don't think on God's priority scale is your happiness. I don't think his chief concern and his chief priority is making sure that you live a happy life. His greatest concern and priority is his own kingdom and its advancement here on earth, even if that means your own happiness gets trumped in the process. And so when we confess Jesus as Lord, what we are also confessing is that, that, well, if it makes you happy or if it makes me happy, will no longer be our guiding and principal ethic in life. The Lordship of Jesus will be our guiding principle and ethic. This is what it means to be a Christian. And really quick, you can begin to see who even decided to become a Christian based on what they thought would be personal happiness and fulfillment because it too revolves around them. Listen, I'm not trying to say that following Jesus does not bring fulfillment and joy. Those are some of the fruits of the Spirit. I'm not saying that, but but that idea that it's a selfish thing ultimately where I'm still at the center and I'm wanting Jesus to revolve around my life and when he's convenient then I can pull him out again. But if you look at all of our heroes of the faith, a life of personal happiness is not a common theme among them. What are common themes are suffering and struggle and tests of faith and opposition, not personal happiness. In fact, Jesus himself will say in Matthew 16 verse 24, Whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's not high up there on happiness. It'll get even a little bit more severe in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, where he'll say, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Which is stinging, isn't it? Not, it's going to be difficult. You'll be, have, you'll be a little bit trouble involved. But like, you cannot be my disciple. In fact, uh, on August 16th of this year, we've got a baptism celebration at the Michiana Christian Service Camp. And, and for those who are getting baptized, what the symbol of baptism literally gives by way of metaphor is this idea of dying to oneself. Like, yeah, I'm not at the center anymore. I, I'm putting Jesus at the center. That's what baptism is all about. And Paul says what happens is you kind of enter into the, a dying to yourself. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, but one in which we're not at the center. Jesus is at the center. Or he'll say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Listen, I've been crucified with Christ. Like, I'm I'm dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is such a radical thing because we live in a world that promotes going after what we want. 
to not deny ourselves anything by way of pleasure or happiness. Perhaps you've heard the little phrase YOLO, right? You only live once. You've seen, you've seen that phrase? This is our rhetoric. It takes a conversion of the heart to lay ourselves aside and place Jesus at the center. But when Jesus becomes the center, what is important then is, is we become who it is that we're following. In fact, that's the whole point of discipleship. Not like, hey, I got a special membership card. The point of discipleship is I'm going to look more and more like him. That is a lifelong process of making my life look like Jesus himself. That we say he's the master, we're the student. He's the teacher, we're the disciple. Which means that our view of what Jesus looks like and who he is becomes very important. So if you picture Jesus as being some pimped out, rich, successful, you know, blessed, JC up in the crib, like if that's your picture of, you know, Jesus, like, well, that will be reflected in your life. Or if for you, Jesus is a gun-toting, Bible-thumping, America-loving, like if that's your Jesus, well, that will manifest in our behavior. I would say to you, be very careful if it turns out Jesus hates everything that you hate and everyone that you hate. Because if you actually pick up the Gospels and read them, what do you see? Jesus is always heading towards the cross. His entire life is spent caring for the poor and the needy and the outcast, the unlovable, the unclean, the oppressed, and the sinful. And he doesn't ever try to promote himself on the backs of the poor and needy. He doesn't try to get rich. You don't see him passing the plate for the third time so he can keep the lease on the luxury SUV he's got parked out in the parking lot. He always moves towards the cross, towards sacrificial love. Jesus literally dies to give life to others. This is his life. This is our ethic. It comes out in Philippians chapter 2. This is the anti-selfie declaration in my mind in, in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, it begins like this. Paul says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Now, listen to what he says verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, if you just stop there and meditate on it, that leads to all sorts of questions you have to ask yourself. You have, like, what am I in the center of? Like, what in my world do I expect to revolve around me? That's what this question is asking us. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. Even in your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Right? He is the template. He's the center. And now what happens in verse 6, you, I don't know if you could tell this or not. If you actually have your Bible open, you might be able to notice, I think verse 6, what Paul is doing here, he's quoting what I think is one of the first Christian hymns. And you can see that in, your, in the Bible as you're reading, all of a sudden the text will look different. It will kind of go uh, to center. It will look like it's, you're reading poetry. It's because I think that what he's quoting here is probably a song that when they got together at church, they sang, like they had a banjo in the background and some drums, and, and they sang this song. But here's what I think the early Christian song said about Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming even obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, that's who's at our center. That's who we pledge to revolve around. We orbit him. And the song will go on and say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always... Now, this is not the song. I think he picks back up for this letter. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, have, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. <laughs> if I could just learn how to get verse 14 right, right? Like... Forget about everything else in Philippians 2. If I could just figure out how to live out verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? It's not about you. Yeah, but this is hard and it doesn't make me happy. It's not about you. Jesus is at the center now, and we revolve around him. He goes on to say verse 15. This is, I found this so interesting. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And when I read that, I thought, ah, yeah, like the world that we live in, it's so self-focused, like it's all about the selfie, it's all about you, You we're always at the center. That if you had a community of people who were actually following after Jesus and had him at the center, I'm telling you, that kind of a life would stick out and it would shine bright in a crooked generation, so to speak. Very bright, like the stars in the sky. Philippians 2 is the anti-selfie declaration. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Which he'll go on to say is to, to think about others. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And could you imagine the revolution that would be in your workplace if everyone lived like that? Or even your marriage, what it would look like if both agreed. Or your friendships. This changes everything. It's what our selfie culture needs in this crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. To not be selfie is to stand out, to shine bright. It's the non-selfie life. If we want to have the mindset of Jesus, then we'll need to go where Jesus goes and we'll need to do what Jesus does, and we'll need to receive from the Father what Jesus has received from the Father. And that's where we'll go next week as we continue our series in Selfie. Like, how do we, how do we get this life then that looks like Jesus in our own lives? So that's where we'll pick up next week. Why don't you go ahead and let's stand together, let's pray, and ask God to bless us with wisdom in this. God, we begin by confessing that each one of us has sort of a natural proclivity to go back to trying to be the center of everything. And what I'm asking for is that you would give to each one of us a revelation of what that looks like in our own life. And I know it's different for each one of us, but for each one of us personally, what does it look like when we place ourselves at the center? And who all does it affect? What are the thought processes? What are the behaviors? What I'm asking for is also the courage by the power of your spirit to repent and to turn away from those things 
and to live a life that embraces Jesus as our center and for us to acknowledge Him as Lord and for our lives to revolve around Him. Now, I pray that in it, we would have lives that really are unique and really do stand out, that our most predominant characteristic 